Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Welcome back to the Fresh Economic Thinking podcast. I'm Cameron Murray, your host, and I have Tim Helm with me today uh, to chat about Yimbies. Now, Tim was on the show recently talking about his journey into property economics, uh, land banking, and and his Barney about some of the analysis of upzoning in Auckland. And I thought I'd have Tim back so we could dig in a little more uh, about this new cultural phenomenon of Yimbyism, the Yes in My Backyard movement. Um, this is a response to NIMBYism, the Not in My Back Yard movement where uh, people uh, complain about changes in their local neighborhood who oppose new development. Um, there's a, been a big push uh, to the opposite and it's popular with uh, famously Matt Iglesias, a, a United States commentator. There are new community groups in Sydney and Melbourne and in Brisbane. Um, the cultural movement is supporting policy change in many cities. British Columbia just outlawed single family zoning, uh, which basically means, uh, you know, allowing people to build uh, more than one house on every uh, dwell, uh, on every property. So I just want to spend some time with Tim and get his views. So Tim, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks, Cam. Thanks for having me back. How did you encounter Yimbies? When did you first hear about this? And and are they, are they a strong group in New Zealand as well, where you're from? Yes, is the answer to that. So it's it's an interesting phenomenon. So we we've had chats about this, and I I, I want to be mostly charitable because I I suppose my um, dealings with you know Yimbyism and its its influence on policy have been working with the ideas, particularly the ideas that upzoning will, you know, prove some panacea for housing affordability. And, you know, there's, there's a lot I could say that on that particular topic. Um, but like you, I've also been fascinated by seeing this grow as a movement and at you know, pondering the reasons for the, the rise and influence of Yimbyism and pondering it as if you like a, a sociological phenomena and uh, with you know psychological roots but i also also basically want to be really careful in talking about it because people hold views for reasons they hold reasons in their head for views and and there's a there's a mode of discourse which i'm seeing more and more and i find it sort of really troubling where uh people's um, views and arguments are, if you like, discounted on a, a kind of um, sociological or psychological analysis or an analysis of their incentives. Mm -hmm. You would say that because you uh, work for the NIMBYs or you would say that because um, young and uh, urbane and, you know, like to live at density, you would, you would believe that. And it, it it's a terrible mode of arguing because you don't get into actually addressing the the arguments on their on their content. I'm actually going to have a shout out to a fantastic methodology of economics course I took here in Wellington in my in my honours year, where we looked at the economics of social science and how 
if you like, um, superficial it was to explain that, in the example I remember, to explain that Pierre voted communist because he was a worker in a factory with, with two children and a low wage. Like, Pierre has a reason for voting communist, and you can ask him. And sort of explaining his views by his circumstance isn't very helpful. So I don't, in discussing Yimbyism, I don't want to pretend that, um, you know, Yimbys are just sort of units in some larger process but it is a fascinating phenomenon and in maybe we should uh how, how would you define it maybe firstly like as a as a movement there's got to be some common core idea yeah. um there what, what's yeah. that core claim yeah that's that's a great question actually because i've i've been um you, you know looking for that core claim and well, I suppose the first thing to say about it is it's defined in opposition to somebody else, a group which has been created. So the Yimbis, if you like, created NIMBYs, or, or at least put the, the the label on them. You know, there is a tendency that has a convenient label now, NIMBYism, and Yimbis define themselves in, in opposition. Um, so in a sense, it's not even clear from uh, the name exactly what they're for, but it centres, I suppose, the policy asks centre on upzoning for density in particularly in well-located well locations within cities. So that's, if you like, the core of Yimbyism. And I found that there is a lot of disagreement on other policy measures and even on the philosophy and goals. So mm. some Yimbys have housing affordability goals are really front and centre. They think housing should be cheaper. Other Yimbys have, if you like, urban form goals like they they like the idea of living at density or they they think it's better for environmental reasons and overall efficiency and you know like they won't find much disagreement on that um some yimbis i think are motivated by quite liberal or libertarian goals that you know you ought to have right to do whatever you want with a thing that's your property um we can get into that but you, you do find a lot of disagreement on um particular policies other than the upzoning point. So you'd have this question around, you know, uh, does, is Yimbyism in favour of upzoning uh, or allowing more farmland to be built on for housing? Like, what's the extent of greenfields and some Yimby that's uh, in the affordability space as opposed to the urban form space would, would be in favour of that and another person wouldn't be. And you have other, if you like, litmus tests like... Um, should a, a council impose minimum building heights to in, enforce a certain high density, which happened here in Wellington? It's a fascinating one I could return to. Um, and you know, other other forces like uh, should we impose parking maximums or let developers um, choose, let the market decide? If people decide through private covenants that they want to restrict density in the area, should we make it easy for the larger polity to overrule them, um, yeah. you know, taking out those private contracts. There's a lot of, if you like, f um, litmus tests that many Yimbies would land on either side of, but the core I can see is in favour of zoning for higher density in well-located areas. So that's really interesting, don't you think, that um, what, what um, binds the group as a social movement is the policy prescription and not the uh, goal or the outcome that we that maybe that policy should lead to. So maybe some people think density is good for urban efficiency reasons and environmental reasons. Some think it's good for affordability reasons. 
Um, some think it's good because uh, free market outcomes are better, therefore any regulation is bad. Um, yeah. And therefore, once you dig into the details, there are actually some contradictions at play. So perhaps we should start maybe with, I, I want to unpick all those, but maybe let's start with the affordability question. Um, that yeah. That to me seems like a major part all right like a um there is an argument that i i think firstly there's a conflation of density and quantity and maybe i'll, I'll get you to ask that but what how do the yimbies what what's their economic story and about affordability from upzoning and what's the economic basis and what are the sort of holes or limits to that in your view yeah yeah, um, I think this is probably the original Yimby claim was young people are priced out of housing um, and, you know, old people hold all the land. There's a generational problem. Housing needs to be cheaper. Certainly in New Zealand, that's a lot of the tone of the debate. Um, although I think as Yimbyism is maturing, that's sort of being set to an aside. And I think the Yimby Melbourne report recently on the missing middle is probably... It's, it's probably a good example of that. It does, it's not making overblown claims about what upzoning can do. It's just sort of settling down and saying, well, you know, we'd like nice, dense cities. So, you know, if Yimbyism just arrives at good planning, then that's that's a pretty good outcome, right? <laughs> good, yeah, fair enough. Good sort of political advocacy spruiking for good planning is something, you know, I could back behind. But the original claims you point out, uh, well, well, particularly in Australia and New Zealand, was around affordability. I think a lot mm. of the roots of in the US, as I understand, come from opposing this uh, sort of racially discriminatory or exclusionary zoning policies, which, had, you know, in my limited understanding, had really, you know, roots in racism. So there's a sort of quest for social justice pushing it in the US that has been, you know, imported fairly inappropriately to Australia and New Zealand or where we haven't really had zoning on the basis of you know, race or as a proxy for keeping out certain races. Um, but the affordability claim and, and the centering of the YIMBY demand on upzoning and seeing it as a panacea is really my, that was my point of engagement with, mm -hmm. with YIMBYism and, and starting point for getting interested in it. Because there is, as you say, there's a conflation of what the regulations do, which is that they bind you know, the density with which a site can be used with what we actually want, which is more housing, which is, you know, a supply of more housing, more housing arrived, more housing being built per year. And the key point they don't realise is that you can upzone for density, but it's the market, it's developers that decide how much of that upzoned land they actually build on and hence how much housing, how much additional housing is supplied to the market. And I really think the, the assumption that the private sector is an uninteresting part, it's an uninteresting intermediary between, you know, the policy decision, the regulatory decision, mm. and is, it's, it's classic uh, policy wonk, you know, policy bubble thinking. You haven't realised there's a private sector that won't just respond mechanically to your regulations as a private sector with independent incentives. So it's total yeah. sort of professional managerial class uh, assumptions and thinking 
um, that, that leads the EMBs to put far more weight on upzoning as a tool for housing affordability than the economics would warrant. The key being that, you know, you can upzone, but this decision uh, is a market decision. Now, there's, there's a point that I think they're really missing, and I describe it as the paradox, or it's a paradox. And that is this point that, um, you know, a regulation can bind on each and every site developed. Say you're limiting heights to three stories and the market would support four or five. Well, the regulation really does bind that development. That developer can build less than if the regulation was looser. The regulation can bind on every single development without binding the market's rate of housing supply. And the simple reason for that being that most sites are not developed in any given period. And the number of sites developed is, in economic language, it's endogenous. It's it's partly a result of how high you let people build. And uh, this is, I suppose, the it's a, it's a great paradox. You've got rules that really do bind every single market actor. So everybody assumes that they bind the whole market and they don't. Yeah. So um, let's let's put some numbers to that. So I think in Auckland, um, the feasible capacity. So we talked last time you were on the show about land banking and this idea that there are sites where there is a uh, it's profitable to develop to more intense uses, but it's currently not developed. And in Auckland, I think the estimate was that um, if you took up all those feasible sites based on the constraints in the planning scheme prior to their 2016 upzoning. You could have built four hundred thousand extra dwellings, or something like that. Is that is that a rough number? Yes, it's, if I recall that yeah. three P figures. I, I and, the rest but there are there are only five hundred thousand dwellings in Auckland at the time, so it's a near eighty percent increase if everyone developed it at once. And so that's you know going to take many many decades. Now yeah, the, the, the upzoning is around fifteen thousand a year, ten to fifteen. So how long does it take ten to fifteen thousand to eat up three hundred? Well, yeah, many years, thirty something, forty years. Um, so um, the upzoning t- changed that number from four hundred thousand to a million. <laughs> and the question yep. is, well, just because you can do a million now, does that mean I have to increase the flow rate of new dwellings from 15,000 when this this feasible capacity is 400,000? Do I have to multiply it by two and a half now, right? And make it 37 and a half thousand a year because I've got this million that I have to use up all in the same time period, (laughs) right? And so you're saying that even if that 400,000 was binding on every site, the 15,000 optimal uh, supply just comes from many different sites and then if you upzone that then you just have uh, the same optimal rate but just on a different bundle of sites at different locations yeah and a smaller fraction of the total that are feasible to develop actually being developed yeah. Yeah, it, this is the, the way i'd express it is there's what you call a realization rate is how it's described in new zealand that's of the sites zoned for housing a certain um, percentage uh, developed every year but the key is this realization rate isn't you know it's one percent it's two percent in Auckland uh, similarly in Wellington but the realization rate isn't like a fixed constant it's not like developers will develop one percent or two percent of of the sites zoned for housing every year it's not some like 
constant in physics like the gravitational constant or something yeah. like is itself a function of the number of sites that are zoned for housing and the independent number of sites that developers actually want to build so in Auckland you know you can triple zoned capacity as as I think the the unitary plan did and it didn't overnight triple the number of sites that developers actually built they kept building the same number of sites and the realization rate the percentage of sites actually developed fell you know by a factor of three so there's a great misunderstanding about that there's a great twitter quote by one of the mps here who essentially just says well only you know x percent of sites are developed every year of zone sites are developed every year so we need to zone more sites if we want more developed and it's just really getting the um uh, the causality um, back to front so it's the number of of new dwellings that's the if you like the uh, the thing chosen by the market the percentage rate of zone sites that gets developed well that's just an outcome it's not really interesting so yeah uh, that's that's interesting um I might get us to some of the weird contradictions in this movement. So um, I've, I've noticed, for example, you mentioned just before, why shouldn't you have a minimum density? So there's a lot of debate in these same social circles about, well, minimum parking requirements. So if you build a dwelling, you have to build an off-street car park. That, that means that parking's too cheap and people drive. Okay, so why don't we have minimum dwelling requirements? Why don't any time anyone wants to build anything, it actually has to be, you know, an eight-pack apartment? Uh, do Yimbis think that that's good? Uh, and, and what's the example you had in mind before? Yeah, I think I mentioned here or, or maybe last time that Wellington actually imposed uh, one of these and it's there was a fairly, you know, Yimby sympathetic council that we've had in recent years and some of the downtown land in Wellington, uh, two major sites were developed quite low rise, sort of two, three, four stories by a couple of developers who um, actually explicitly said, we think this style of development has a market and is likely to be outlawed by council soon because council is very clear they want high density development downtown therefore we're going to get in and if you like corner the market and council in its uh, wisdom in wellington so so outraged that anyone would build townhouses downtown instead of apartment buildings you know promptly went ahead and did what the developers expected which is that they uh, outlawed any further building below a six-story minimum in the, the Tearo area of Wellington, which is a sort of um, commercial area that's now uh, um, sort of being used for infill housing. Uh, and so the developers, for one, cornered the market now for this quite well-located townhouses downtown. But uh, secondly, by imposing a minimum density requirement, you know, there's a high risk that that will just delay development altogether. Like if you if a developer preferred to build two stories and six stories, as these developers evidently did, uh, then you know possibly they prefer to not build at all than to build to six stories. Are they going to delay development for some time? So evidently, at least in certain circles, the idea of using the big hand of the state to force landowners to do certain things with their land is is quite popular. So there are this is, if you like, an internal contradiction within 
some people that would identify as YIMBYs or, you know, identify as pro-housing or pro-density, whatever they like, should density be something that the public sector forces or foists on the private sector? Or are we actually more about the market deciding? So there's a real schism, if you like. There's a real lack of clarity about whether this is purely a free market um, type of ideology, like a, a sort of reheated neoliberal faith in markets, or whether this is actually more about people who who know better how things should be, um, um, telling people and forcing landowners to develop a certain way because we want a certain type of city. Um, so yeah. I suppose, yeah, as you point out, and it's nicely phrased, there are many internal contradictions of the philosophy of Yimbyism. It just kind of coheres around one particular idea, which is you ought to upzone um, where there's currently lowish density zoning. Um, yeah, and I think I, th I think that comes comes across when it when the position on roads, for example, uh, in the movement, it's very much an urban urbanism movement, right? They like density they like public transit and cycling and you know shop fronts down the main street which is great i love that too but the you know those places aren't usually cheap to live because they're such high amenity and i find it interesting that you know you can be a yimby for all that and i certainly am but then you know building highways out into paddocks to build new subdivisions uh is that's another way to get more quantity of dwellings as well but uh probably a lot of yimbies would be nimbies for that we don't need more highways we don't need more bulldozing the the uh you know uh environmental areas uh and native habitats for houses um so that, that that's sort of uh a weird one and it gets to this um what I wanted to ask you about, which is this spatial idea that, yeah, it's great to have more homes in the city, but won't they be the more expensive ones? And doesn't does it really matter at all where the new homes go? Isn't there a spatial, you know, spatial equilibrium, economists would call it? Can't you just build homes anywhere? Why do they have to be more dense? How do the how do the Yimbies deal with that, or do they not? Well. Yeah, look, I, I think the Yimbies maybe don't have uh, one voice on, say, things like building out more in the green fields. Um, there is there are better and worse arguments here, and and the worse arguments that I've heard are that, well, if you allow density in an area and the area gentrifies and you know the price of houses goes up, then well, you know, those houses are expensive. You're, you're not making things any cheaper. And it does ignore, like, the pretty strong evidence that across a housing market as a whole, more housing does, you know, filter um, uh, to other parts of the market. And it filters, of course, because, you know, these all parts of the city are linked. They're really a single housing market in many respects with different, you know, locational attributes on on the types of houses there. And uh, the, the the prices from one place to another equalize according to uh, the relative desirability, which often means relative travel time, but also relative amenity. And I think that uh, we, we didn't quite get to talking about it last time, but the really key um, thing that I think is missing from a lot of people's view on this stuff is that this phenomenon of 
um, spatial equilibrium of, of prices equalizing to some extent. That's a phenomenon that happens across places as well, across cities. It doesn't just happen within a city. It's not just the case that, uh, say, more you know, housing in a, a gentrified urban area makes it cheaper on the fringe or that more houses on the fringe make things cheaper in the center. Like all that spatial equilibrium stuff applies sensibly within the city, but it also applies across cities as well. So if you do something in Auckland that makes housing cheaper in Auckland, well, that won't last too long. Like there's a there's a time frame on which you can actually improve housing affordability in your jurisdiction before these adaptive responses, this you know migration response and this consumption response will kick in. You've got to deal with not just your current batch of residents who, you know, of course, would like cheaper houses and bigger houses, but you've got to deal with everybody who might want to move to your place if you make it a bit cheaper or you can buy a bit more for the same price. Uh, and that's the, the idea of spatial equilibrium, that, that people, well, that migration really just continually equalizes quality of life. You know, people move from place to place, like, like sort of water moving in the sea. You know, classically, they move from somewhere to Wellington to study, and then maybe, you know, Wellington to Melbourne for for you know wages and then Melbourne to Gold Coast because Melbourne rents get too high or et cetera, et cetera. You can see, for example, the Sydney migration data, just a steady outflow of Australian residents. Uh, Melbourne was always quite uh, you know, balanced. Yeah. Uh, Queensland, uh, quite positive in migration. And that's you know because Sydney is getting expensive. People flow away from Sydney and they move to Melbourne or they move to you know the Gold Coast or wherever it is. And this, um, I think what Yimbyism is missing here is a recognition of the limits that local policies can have on local affordability. Like if you somehow succeed, if, if you know, you and I are basically wrong around the relationship between zoning and housing supply and somehow upzoning miraculously makes housing cheaper without, without that just being because the place has become worse to live, you know, congested and shaded. Yeah. If it somehow makes life better and cheaper, well, everyone's going to move there, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, here's a prime example. I've, I'll, I'll quote an Australian colleague of mine who moved to Wellington for a few years, and I visited him once and uh, complained about the wind. And he said, he said, because he loved Wellington to death for his time here, he said, nah, mate, if it wasn't windy, everyone would be here. And it sort of just captures this point, right, that like the amenity shapes migration and all these factors of quality of life shape where people live in ways that determine the price you pay to live in a place pay more yeah. in sydney beautiful you pay more in wellington because it's beautiful um and i think uh you know recognition by yimbyism of the limits to which um you know any place can influence its housing affordability would be welcome and i'll just yeah. raise one point on that which is that the upzoning point I think the best phrase I've seen is from Nicole Garin, the housing researcher in Australia, who calls the zoning, the push to zone, upzone everywhere for affordability. She calls it a really compelling distraction. And that nails it for me because the distraction here is from the point that uh, housing outcomes for the poor and the middle class are really a function of the relative share of their society's wealth that they've got. And it's until we 
end with the distractions in housing policy and get with the real causes of housing inequality and housing poverty being general inequality and general poverty, we're not going to make much progress on housing affordability. We've just been distracted by things like this, this zoning debate and um, it's, it's a source of frustration, really. Yeah. So let me just um, summarise. You're saying that even if one city upzoned like crazy and even if I'm wrong in my claims that, you know, this is not going to make housing cheaper or change the rate of new construction per year very much, um, you're, you're also adding this spatial dimension and saying, well, if it is effective hypothetically and prices, say, fall um, – 15 or 20 percent in let's say Brisbane where I live won't that just make Brisbane a relatively more attractive place given the other opportunities and incomes and whatnot so people will just leave Sydney and come to Brisbane until such time as that um, prices are more expensive and that there's no um, price difference between Sydney and Melbourne again is that the basic argument yeah that's a spatial equilibrium point but it's and that there's no quality of life difference so each and place different amenity but yeah. uh, quality of life equalizes so and, essentially and the, the quality of life premium equals the rental premium basically um so if yeah. you had the same income in sydney as in brisbane um but the quality of life is better you would pay a higher rent for that higher quality of life exactly equal to that value yeah hold the wage constant the travel time to your work constant uh hold the rent well, and yeah, and then you know the quality of life premium determines the rent premium. That's basically that's the special equilibrium idea in a nutshell. So let me ask you then, what's your take? One thing I've noticed is that Yimbys nearly universally want open national borders. So does that not then equalize quality of life in both directions to those borders that? become open as well like it that seems like a contradiction to me it seems to me that an immigration restriction can intervene in the spatial equilibrium between you know in uh, india china wherever in asia and australia it's the very fact that um this migration is limited that allows us to have this um you know better than global equilibrium outcome how how have you noticed this as a contradiction? Do you see it as one or do you have a different take on the YIMBY and immigration open borders thing? Yeah, you're, I mean, it's a really great illustration of spatial equilibrium is that open borders mean you will just have flows of people in until quality of life equalizes. And, you know, to be clear, quality of life can equalize not just via rents being pumped up, but by every other bit of life becoming a bit worse. Your traffic congestion gets worse, so your commute's longer. You know, the, the noise from your neighbours, the amenity impacts of, you know, all these crowding and nuisance externalities can just ramp up until people of means want to leave and your city is left as a place that's, I don't know, less pleasant to live in and probably a bit more expensive to live in because people are prepared to pay an awful lot compared to the you know, the, their low, if you like, mm. reservation utility, wherever they come from. And, I'm, you know, a classic example here is Australia and New Zealand. Like we have a single, we have a migration union and it's, Australia is lucky that it's the larger country and New Zealand is a smaller country because New Zealand is the place where wages and, if you like, material quality of life 
is lower. So the flow of migration is, is pretty much one way from New Zealand to Australia. Now, if Australia was the size of New Zealand and New Zealand was the size of Australia, we would be talking about a, a flow that really made things expensive in Australia. So woe betide New Zealand if we improve our productivity and I don't know, Australia's terms of trade uh, you know, fall off a cliff because yeah. everyone will come to Wellington and I will, I already can't afford to live here. So we'll, you know, things will, will be even worse. And and imagine that on a sort of open global scale. Um, this is the point. So there was, there's one paper that I think is really interesting, essentially from some researchers in New Zealand um, through MOTU, the, the think tank that showed that New Zealand and Australian major cities are in a form of a single housing market. You know, you can detect in the data that a, a shock to one is passed through to all. Um, that's a, you know, a nice illustration of spatial equilibrium forces at work. Now, as for Yimbyism and, and immigration policy, I mean, it's it's bizarre that Yimbys seem to have cares about immigration and to the extent they do care about immigration, they, they seem to be supporting policy that would be worse for their you know, proclaimed goals of cheaper housing, because there's no question that you know, allowing faster migration makes for more expensive housing, at least in the short term. Um, so yeah. it's it's bizarre. And I suppose the only way you can explain it is that this sort of internal inconsistency between your policy view and your expressed goal is just because you've got a bunch of beliefs that everyone else in your your tribe believes and you, you coalesce around these things. Um, yeah. It's it's an odd one. I I, I know the um, Matt Iglesias, you know, uh, U.S. social commentator. He wrote a book called One Billion Americans, and I remember him on a, being interviewed saying, "Yeah, just open the borders, everyone will come. We'll have a billion people. It'll be great." And I mean, that's his pitch, kind of. But then he, when he was interviewed, basically he's like, "Yeah, I probably wouldn't like living in the city if all these people came, and I probably would have to move somewhere else." and I'm just like, it sounds like you would hate it. Is this just a social signal? Is this just muckraking to sell books? Like, do you really deeply believe it? It, it was a puzzle to me, and I think it flows through this movement in general. And another puzzle uh, before we wrap up is this idea of voluntary covenants and democracy. I, I you know, I, I was sort of shit-staring on Twitter and said, you know, Yimby's anti-democratic because if people want to elect... Uh, councils and governments that protect heritage or do whatever, surely they should be allowed to. And I mean, you know, do Yimbis think voluntary covenants that pass over time? So voluntary covenants are essentially contracts that stick with a property that limit its use into the future. Uh, just like a zoning rule sticks with an area and, you know, limits types of uses. Have you noticed this before or do you think um, I'm just sort of you know, uh, caricaturing a certain element of the movement? Um, yeah, great question. I, I guess, well, there's two two things I'd say in response. And one is that uh, I was wrong earlier in saying there's one thing that unites CMBism, which is the upzoning call. I suppose the second thing that unites CMBism is the idea that if local democracy isn't producing what the MBs want, they've got no qualms about sending upstairs to mum and dad, right? And that might not be on any principled position around the right level of decision-making on things like housing, transport. It's just that if we don't like the outcomes, we want to get someone more powerful to overrule those outcomes. So there's, uh, you know, they'll find a rationalisation in terms of 
spillovers from local areas to others they're pretty thin rationalizations really but the one you know the second thing that unites symbiomism is um if you like a disdain for local democracy and a willingness if the higher level of if that level of democracy doesn't deliver what the MBs want to demand that higher levels do and that's that's been a key I suppose to YIMBY political successes is that they've asked higher levels of, levels of government to essentially constrain the powers of lower levels of government now that's yeah. that's there's debates to be had about the right level of decision making but I do, certainly don't think those are those are being had no look I, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm I agree there is a debate to be had and I think in particularly in Australia where councils are very small in Sydney for example that yeah. you know you're trying to create regulations for the region you know as we were saying the whole urban region is a market and having certain councils that are you know one twentieth of that market doing their own things probably not ideal so I, I sort of agree in some ways that there's a conversation to be had but you know uh just sort of picking and choosing your political level based on your policy preferences is kind of a weird thing i mean effective lobbying approach but um, yeah i don't yeah. know what the principle is behind it i think um yeah when it comes to you know it'll be interesting to see uh the views of a national government uh, you know, a national level government overrides all local territories. And that, in a sense, uh, has happened in New Zealand, where it's seen that local councils, um, you know, would cover a whole urban area often, mm. uh, were not doing enough. So the national government stepped in and said, you've got to play your part in in accommodating high population growth. Our decision to impose high population growth is, you know, not going to work unless we force you to, you know, accommodate all that. So, yeah, they're really open questions about the right level of democracy. I don't really have the answers, but I'm not seeing much engagement with those ideas within Yimbyism. Uh, your point on Terrific. covenants. Yeah, I'll, I didn't have much to add, really, other than there's probably one of those, you know, mind-exploding dilemmas for the Yimby. Like, if a covenant imposes lower density, do I let do i want to you know use it's exact, exactly exactly like the voluntary voluntary developer we talked about before so tim i i think that's a good place to wrap up i think we've taken a, a bit of a detailed tour into the economics the spatial equilibrium and the yimbyism i would encourage all my listeners to go to prosper.org.au which is uh, where tim is research director thanks very much for coming tim thanks a lot cam cheers 